Hey everybody, welcome back. Today I'm chatting with Becca Pressing, who identifies as a queer neurodivergent person. We're going to be having a chat about autism, ADHD, and navigating a world that was built for neurotypical people. We'll also be explaining what neurotypical and neurodivergence means and how this impacts someone's mental health, someone's sense of self-worth, and someone's idea of their place in the world. So Please welcome Becca. You may know her from one of the seasons of The Bachelorette and you may also know her for some of the brilliant events that she hosts in Melbourne or the different content that she puts out into the world around autism, ADHD, queerness and mental health. Hey everyone, we're here chatting with Becca now. Welcome to the podcast, Becca. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, tell us a little bit about your day. I know that you mentioned that you have been running around a little bit. Look, my life is constant chaos at all times, but it turns out that's how I kind of like it. So we just go with the flow. Yeah. Um, but today has just been a mix of like life admin, getting food to make meals for the week and then shopping around op shops to try and find stuff that will fit the aesthetic I'm going for for the Lesbian and Neurodivergent bar that I'm opening. Mm, amazing. All right, tell me more about this because I don't know much about this. Okay, so it's called, well, it's going to be called Beans. Love. Uh, for multiple reasons. Firstly, lesbians. Um, <laughs> but most importantly, my cat, Yam Bean, he is actually the main reason behind it. Anyway, so it's going to be called Beans and I basically just want to make it as a place that's really catered to and promoted for uh, like lesbians, pretty much everyone in the LGBTQIA community that isn't a gay man. Mm. Not to say gay men aren't included, but they already have a lot of spaces that cater specifically to them. Mm. Um, and so the aim is to really cater for the market that isn't currently being catered for like me and you right mm. like women are the ones that don't really have the queer spaces at the moment yeah. um and then on top of that it's going to have the neurodivergent aspect as well where i want to have uh, like neurodivergent nights every week where it's like a specific night where it is catered specifically for like people with autism and adhd and all of those kind of things that i obviously have a lot of experience with mm. um so that's the plan. It will always be neurodivergent friendly, but obviously like that varies from person to person. So there will be like one night specifically catered to it. 100%. Um, because that's the main thing I have read about is that you um, want to make it a really supportive um, space for neurodivergent people. And I, I really want to know a little bit about that, like what caused um, you to start thinking about that? Because I imagine that there's been, and we're going to talk about so many different elements of um, of autism and ADHD and different neurodivergent areas, um, but what are the some of the main areas that you found really impacted you and you found you couldn't feel fully comfortable in a space sometimes? There's a lot of things that it's it's all pretty much sensory related. I feel like the sensory issue is like the number one concern. 
Um, but then there's also like the attention issue as well. So from an, in- an attention issue, I've got like bubble poppers and stuff that I'm going to have in like a basket that people can just like fidget with basically while they're there drinking, having a conversation, whatever, because I know for me, I need something with my hands. Like if you put a glass of water in front of me and you keep refilling it, I will keep drinking it until I die of overhydration. Mm. Like I, I don't have like a capacity in me that's like, stop, you should stop because you've got to do things. Um, And then the autism, well, so a second part of that is uh, having, I'm going to have food that's very basic, Mm. shall we say, like safe, safe food. So think, think things like nuggets and fries and hot dogs and I mean, I haven't fully planned the menu, so don't hold me to anything. But the aim is to have it as like a very simple menu that's kind of nothing fancy. Food is not the focus, but it's sort of a place where you don't need to worry about finding something that you like because you only like very sim- like simple things because of autism affecting the way we feel and taste things. Yeah. Um, and then we're also going to have like lower lighting and you know when you go into a bar and there's just music blasting and you can't even have a conversation? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. None of that. Mm-hmm. Like on, on Friday and Saturday nights, yeah, there'll be like a dancey vibe with music and stuff, but the neurodivergent nights in particular will be very low, like chill music that mm-hmm. is not hindering a conversation. I love that. Yeah, they're f- my favourite um, like date places is those really low STEM environments and I actually... I'm really impressed sometimes by people being able to cope with like really bright lights, really loud music um, and not a lot of calming things around. Like some, the way some nervous systems work is they can just work in that way. They are calm in those environments. But um, like you said, for a lot of neurodivergent people, that's very overwhelming. So I can only imagine how calm it will be to feel like you're having the full night out, but not coming home, feeling like your entire been drained trying to get through it yeah I think also I mean like I know for me specifically there are nights when you can take me to a busy club and I'm fine I will vibe I will have the best night I will dance I will sing I will be like loud and reckless and there are nights where I go into that environment and I'm just like I need I need to leave like Mm -hmm. it's I'm not the same every day it really depends on how stimulated I've been that day how much dopamine I have how many spoons I've got like all of those analogies that sort of make life a little bit more complicated when mm. you're neurospicy. Has it been a lot to wrap your head around thinking about the different, like, because everyone is so different about the different needs of everyone or have you sort of just thought I'm just going to do my best and and know that I'll learn as I go with the different things that people need? I think it is, it's very much a I'm going to do my best and learn as I go on the way. I mean, there's going to be things that are going to change. There's obviously things that are massive sensory issues for me that are maybe not massive like sensory issues for everyone else. Mm. Um, So I'm going to try and cater for as many people as I can. But I'm also realistic that you're always going to have people that are like, you're not catering to me. Like you can't please everyone. Totally. So it's yeah. just going to be a matter of pleasing as many as I can. That's realistic, realistically possible because I don't have unlimited funds. 
100% honey. And I think that's just an important lesson in life in knowing that you just legitimately can't please everyone. And even if you tried to please that person who is, isn't having a need met, then they might create the next thing. So I think it's exactly. great that you're going in with that approach. And so what I want to start with first is what, if we were to look at a snapshot of your life over the last few days, what would we be seeing? So I am at uni full-time mm-hmm. as well as I work at a not-for-profit. Yeah. As what well as studying? Um, I'm studying digital media and marketing because I figured oh. it would be the most useful with the bar. Basically. Yeah. Cool. I love um, that. Yeah. So you know how there's a lot of talk about like neurodivergence and like having their special interest. Yeah. And then there's a certain type of neurodivergent where their special interest is everything. <laughs> and I I love it because I'm good at everything, but I hate it because I don't have a single special interest. My the focus is always in like 47 different directions. Yeah, yeah. So it's definitely like hard to like manage and focus and finish something from start to finish when everything is exciting. Mm-hmm. What did, I watched something recently and I was like, I want to do that. And then I was like, you literally do not have the time to do that. I can't remember what it was. Oh, yeah, I was watching a real estate show. Into the mix I, I watched a real estate show and I should like, I was like, I should go into real estate. And then I was like, no, you, on what planet do you have time to go into real estate? Especially no. when real estate is all consuming. It's not just a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> but I have this like unrealistic expectation of myself where I'm like, I can do it all. Yeah. I love that though. Like when there's a lot of people who are just very numb and moving through the world, not enjoying anything, mm. then we've got these people out here who are just like, Give me everything. Yeah. 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 So my therapist every week is like, okay, so have we scheduled rest this week? And I'm like, no, I don't have time for rest. Don't be silly. <laughs> She's like, you need imagine, to make time. Like, yeah, 100%. I ask my clients that every week. Like that's why I giggled then because I was like, yeah, oh, the amount that my clients will like prioritize rest is minimal. <laughs> yeah. And I'll be like, will I sleep? And she's like, not enough. And I'm like, well, that's because sleep's a waste of time. <laughs> like, I am, I'm a, I'm a problem. I've got many problems. Um, yeah. So my life is very busy because of uni work, organizing everything for beans, which is so much paperwork. And there's also quite a lot of actual work to do once I get the venue before mm. it opens. And where, what's the non-for-profit you're working for? Um, I work at Ronald McDonald House. Wow, that's amazing. Mm, yeah. Can and I, it is, it um, is. Has, is that as a full-time like uni student and working for a not-for-profit and then doing like all the other activities that you do, have there been elements of work that you've found challenging? I mean, it's it obviously can be like a very serious workplace, yeah. very sick kids, but like I'll just get overwhelmed if I get backed up and I'm behind with things and then that's when I have a problem when I'm like sort of not on top of everything yeah I only ask because quite a few of my clients have um hit complete burnout like they're um Mm. yeah just in complete ASD burnout and I think that I'm seeing it more and more and it's weird because I would like to think that everyone's becoming more aware of neurodivergence, but I'm seeing more and more burnout. Um, 
And I just wonder like how different people navigate the demands of workplaces, um, considering the way that, considering their needs and considering the way that the workplace doesn't meet their needs, because that's the the way that we're operating at work. So looking at it is, however, at Ronnie, it's not mm. like it's not. It is not like all-consuming, so busy that I can't think or breathe or do anything. It is a very. It, they're they're very good at catering for, the minority. I guess mm. is how I'd put it, which is really nice. Yeah. Do you think there's something to um like what I guess what's your experience or do you have any take on where we've got lots of people who are experiencing burnout and they're expected to mold to the workplace versus workplaces not being set up for them to thrive? <sighs> it's hard because I left my previous job because the workplace wouldn't mould to me. Mm. Mind you, this was before I was diagnosed and so I didn't know that I was leaving because they weren't catering to my neurodivergent. I was like, they're just not catering to my needs, like what I need. So I was like, I'm out skis. Like we have come a long way with catering for neurodivergence, but I feel like we've also still got a really long way to go. Mm. And there's also a really massive stigma, like, of people not wanting to disclose those conditions to their workplace, which would then get them like any kind of catering, right? Definitely. So like I I have friends who have an ADHD diagnosis that don't want to disclose it to their workplace Mm. because they don't want to be seen as weak or, you know, negative or whatever, whatever the issue may be. And don't get me wrong, there's lots of negatives about neurodivergency but there's also a lot of positives in the workplace in particular because we're, we we are very overworking in general, mm. which mm. is why we experience so much burnout. Burnout, yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think you just said so many really interesting points there. If you, did you reach a certain point that pushed you to get a diagnosis? Like it sounds like there was a, a life that you had before this where you had an understanding of some of the things that were impacting you, um, but now you're at a whole new level of, like, understanding? So it's interesting. So I uh, recently have been getting these brain treatments to treat major depression, which is, like, a whole other can of worms. Mm. Um, However, in treating that and talking with the specialist there and talking with my therapist, the general consensus for me and for my like autism and ADHD symptoms is that they were exacerbated by childhood trauma. So if I didn't have the childhood trauma, I wouldn't be diagnosed and I wouldn't need as much assistance as I do now, Mm. if that makes sense. So he's like, they're like, you would have still had them, but they would have been much milder. Yeah. And the trauma um, that you experienced expanded that. trauma sits in the body and the way that um, it can cause lifelong like nervous system dysregulation do you feel like that on top of an underlying autism diagnosis is then a lot of like um, sensory sensitivities and nervous system dysregulation yeah I mean I had the sensory stuff I've 
always had. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, 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 I guess like the problematic symptoms of ADHD, like I personally find for me, ADHD is much more problematic than autism. Like I, autism, if I was only ADHD and not autistic as well, my life would not function. The autistic side of me keeps the ADHD side of me like in check. Mm, okay. And so I, I need that. that. Yeah. So. Do you know why that is? Well, I think it's just because autism is all about like scheduling and organizing and like being on top of kind of everything and being able to like perceive what situations can come up and being ready for things in advance. Whereas ADHD is being chronically disorganized Mm. and chaotic and all over the place. And I am chaotic and all over the place, but I have enough of the autism side that keeps me in control with the schedule that I function a lot better Mm-hmm. because of it I mean this is all this is a h- complete hypothesis that I've made up but I feel like it's right yeah I love it so um and I feel like why we might have gotten on that is because is were you experiencing a lot of different things because of having ADHD that um that led you to to knowing that you have ADHD like what was going on in your life so I met my best friend nine years ago And when she met me nine years ago, I thought I was straight and neurotypical, which is Mm. cute. Um, And she met me and she was like, oh, so you're, you're like neurodivergent and gay, right? And I was like, what? No, it's worth noting that she's like a psychologist. So this is all very on brand. Um, (laughs) And then we lived together for ages. She like never really brought up again. And then when TikTok came around, it would start sending me it would like show things on my for you page about ADHD and I'd be like oh that's weird whatever I don't have it it's fine um and then she would send them to me and be like (coughs) it's you (laughs) and it got to a point where I was like okay I feel like you're probably onto something here so Naturally, I didn't do this because I have ADHD, but she wrote a list of all of my symptoms of like everything that I do that is actively impeding my life that is ADHD. And then she was like, cool, go and book in with a psychiatrist. And I went and booked in with like an ADHD specialist psychiatrist. And he's like, yeah, I don't know how you got this far without not being diagnosed, to be honest. Wow. He's like, he's like you're, one of, you're one of the most serious cases I've ever seen. And I was like, cool wow was that very validating it was because I I think a lot of people know that neurodivergent people receive a lot of criticism when they're growing up like there's some report that said that by the time we're seven or ten or something we've received 20,000 more pieces of criticism than a neurotypical person Mm. and I had a lot of that criticism growing up so it was very affirming to be like okay there's not something wrong with you Mm. like you you aren't going through life actively pissing people off or actively doing things that are incorrect you just have a brain that is wired differently from most people which Mm. means that you think and act in ways that they don't understand yeah but they're not necessarily the ways that you like what are some of the things you receive criticism for because I know that you you know what this seems like but there's still a lot of lack of awareness out there so for anyone listening like 
what's what are some of the things that baby Becca was doing <laughs> or like adolescent Becca was doing that um that your friend would have been picking up on so the probably the most there was like two most common things that were said to me and it was probably can you just be normal for once mm-hmm. and you're just a lot mm. like said with a really negative tone right so like is you're that too you are too much situations like is it yeah yeah so social situations feeling like um because I don't understand how neurodivergence um is for you so I'm just going to reel some things off and if they're wrong just mm-hmm. let me know but is it like that you would get really excited about certain things and people were ready for you to stop talking about them but you were still ready to keep talking about them was it the um the being late or losing things was it um um because it was like the a lot of it is like energy like I have a lot of energy Mm -hmm. in general and a a lot of the it's a lot stuff was about like you need to calm down Mm. just you need to calm down you're too much Mm. um and the can you just be normal for a second there are just things that I do that I guess a normal person would think were weird Mm. but I you know it's like when you joke about like childhood trauma and like Mm -hmm. someone that's also had childhood trauma is like huh and someone that hasn't is like what is wrong with you Mm -hmm. do you feel like um where you're at now because I love that you speak openly about life in general but do you feel like um you've moved through or you're still moving through, like, I guess, and I think we all are in some way moving through shame, but shame about who you are because the the world operates in a certain way. Yeah, so shame is my biggest hindrance. Mm. Like that's what I've learned in therapy is that shame is like a, a very big problem for me. Wow. Is Which that- is funny because I am an overly confident person. Mm. like in general and I am very confident in myself and a lot of that comes from ages like zero to 12 when I had really supportive parents who didn't know that I was neurodivergent because they were also undiagnosed with neurodivergence but because they had it they understood it and so they were very supportive so Mm -hmm. I have that like inner child that is very healthy and I have that base which is amazing the problem then came after 12 when my dad died and the support sort of went away. Mm. I think it's really beautiful you validated after 12 because I know that when you look into trauma and when you're working with a therapist and when we're looking at shadow work and all that sort of stuff, a lot of it is stemmed back to up to seven you know where they say it's those really formative years yeah I think it's really beautiful you validated that like we are still so young from like 12 to 20 we're still so young 12 to 27 I mean adolescence has been found to finish at 27 now but I think we can overlook how much damage is done in those years and it doesn't mean that a lot of the time it is because of external things, external pressures and mm. perceptions and beliefs of how you should be. Um, and 
yeah I think thank you for saying that that's really lovely to talk about yeah and I think it's I mean from what my therapist tells me it's it's quite uncommon to have like the healthy foundation. It's much more common to have an unhealthy foundation and then move into a healthy foundation later on. Yes. Um, but for me, it's like, she's like, it's been, it's so good because you can, you can vividly see that you have this like really healthy part of you mm. at its core, but you've got all this stuff that's, I guess, like clogging it up that mm-hmm. isn't letting you see the healthy part. Yeah. Yeah. I I resonate with that. That sort of conversation makes me um, wonder what assumptions you're tired of being made about you. Um, And you can talk about other people if you want to as well, like assumptions you're tired of when it comes to ADHD, but I guess maybe assumptions about you that, um, that you're tired of hearing or tired of wondering if people are thinking it. I don't know that there's any assumptions that I'm tired of hearing about. Mm. I think it's more that the general discussion around ADHD really doesn't expose how debilitating it is Mm. and how, like I, if I was going to use a word to explain ADHD, like just one adjective, I would say exhausting. Yeah. And I don't, if you look at the public perception of it as a disorder, I don't think that would be the word anyone would choose. Mm. And obviously everyone's experience is different, but for me, it's exhausting. Mm. What's the what's the perception that you see people having of ADHD? I feel like they just think it's, I mean, it's that whole like hyperactive, unable to focus, uh, you know, inability to concentrate, that kind of stuff and I mean that's definitely an element and that affects more people more than others Mm. but I think it's it's a very it is nowhere near the most debilitating part of it yeah what are the what are the debilitating parts for you what leaves you exhausted so for I know what I know the RSD like rejection sensitivity dysphoria aspect is a massive thing for people Mine is my working memory. Like my working memory is so bad. Mm. And I sort of try, like I was actually explaining this to my therapist um, the other day because she's like, I don't have a huge amount of experience with neurodivergency. Like, and I don't know, when we were talking, and I was like, imagine every day walking around to leave the house. You've got your keys in your hand and you're like, damn it, I forgot my drink bottle. So you go upstairs and you grab your drink bottle and then you leave the house only to look down to find that your keys are no longer in your hand. Mm. And every day, multiple times a day, that is what it is like. So just constantly mindlessly put whatever you need down somewhere and then you spend 10 to 15 minutes trying to figure out where it is that you could have possibly left it. Mm -hmm. Just knowing that you can't trust your own memory because it's inaccurate. Mm. my it's almost like gaslighting yourself right yes 
My, because um, I, I don't have an ADHD diagnosis, but I've experienced that my whole life. And um, I say to, because I run a business that really impacts how um, the business, well, not how the business is run. It just impacts how I started it and how I show up in life. And I remember saying to um, my manager the other day, it's not cute. Like it's so past being cute and quirky that I forget everything. I like frustrate myself and get yes. so confused by myself like I'll do things and the amount of times I'm like fucking hell Tessa like out loud because I'm yeah kind of like it's something beyond you like you're you're a logical yeah. intellectual human but it feels like it's beyond you like what keeps happening yeah mm-hmm. so when I was explaining this to my therapist because I'm the same I'll be like for fuck's sake like can you not just remember wait like just don't put it down. You need it. Mm. And my therapist is like, that self-talk, that is rooted in shame. Mm. She's like, you are shaming yourself for something that is completely out of your control. Mm. Mm. And I was like, she's like, she's, she's like, you need to think of a way to like put it in a positive light. And I was like, how is wasting an hour of my day every day trying to find things ever going to be a positive? And totally. she's like, well, you just you just yeah. need to be a bit more forgiving of yourself because Easier she said. Said and this, done, isn't it? It is. Because sometimes she said something, it stops being funny. <laughs> it, it's literally, it stopped being funny like two decades ago. Mm-hmm. And she said to me something that made me cry, which when I'm in therapy, if she says something that makes me cry, it means that she's triggered something that I didn't even know was an issue generally. Mm. And she was like, you need to figure out how to be more accepting of your working memory because it's going to be like this for the rest of your life. And I was like, Mm. fuck me, Mm. fuck dealing with this for the rest of my life. And it was at that moment where I was like, this is the part that's debilitating. This yeah. is the part that is so frustrating and exhausting and repetitive. And no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you try and incorporate a system where you have a place where you put your keys or what, it just doesn't work. Mm. It probably works for some people, but it does not work for me. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I love that your therapist is so upfront about it. Yeah, she's lit. I love her. <laughs> Do you have, um, cause there'll possibly be people listening who I know there's a lot more understanding of ADHD going around, which is awesome. And some people questioning whether they should get a diagnosis. Have you found, have you found it to be useful to know that side of yourself, like in a formal way? I think for ADHD, having the diagnosis has been helpful purely to have access to the medication options. Mm. I think if you have no interest in the medication options, you don't necessarily need a formal diagnosis, but you can still see a therapist in regards to ADHD. Like the formal diagnosis doesn't really do anything unless you want a prescription. Mm. Mm. I, I feel because yeah. you can kind of source all of this information or get things that work for you or find systems that are great without a diagnosis. Yeah. So if someone was uh, seeking the diagnosis for their own sort of like validation and comfort, which is so, so, so valid to do. Mm, absolutely. Do you think then there's, if they're seeking it for that and they um, they don't necessarily need it for any other reason, do you think that it then becomes really important to validate yourself? Like without that formal diagnosis that validate that 
even without a formal diagnosis, that what you're going through is really hard and these things are real? Yeah, absolutely. And I am of the, I think self-diagnosis is completely valid. Mm. And if having a formal diagnosis is going to positively impact you, if that's like, for instance, I'm someone that deals specifically in fact Mm. and I don't respect things that I don't understand. So Mm. getting that formal diagnosis could make a difference for some people. It's just that for me personally, I was already so sure that I had it Mm. that I was like, it's like I needed the medication to assist me in like being a functional human. Totally. Yeah. I just perfect because I think that there's a lot of, um, I remember when I was exploring my mental health years and years ago, um, looking online and just seeing that it, you know, if, if you have a formal depression diagnosis, if you have a formal, like, um, Mm. you know, general anxiety disorder, things like that, which felt, I remember feeling so invalidated at the time. I was like, well, fuck, I haven't gone to a psychiatrist to get the diagnosis, but something is going on. Like I have, yeah, I'm very like prone to, I was very prone to sadness. And, um, I just, I think that that's a really important part that I'm like, Uh, talking about with my clients is how important it is to write down all the challenges Like we made a validation Mm -hmm. for one of my clients workplaces the other day write down all the challenges and look back at it and be like fuck that's really hard yeah yeah regardless of the um of the formal diagnosis can I ask honey um uh how how does being you and like the way the world um impacts you and all the different things how does being you impact your mental health Hmm. I think I have like a very clear detachment from myself um in like I I am detached from like my ADHD is like a separate detached part of me it's obviously part of who I am, but like when I'm talking about ADHD, I'm talking about it as like if it's another person standing next to me. Yeah. Not as a Always so I have a very detached, I have a very detached view of like emo- and emotions as well. Like I'm not great at feeling emotions. I can articulate them and I can intellectualize them and I can tell you why I'm feeling that way, but I don't actually feel the emotion. Do you know why? Which I uh I, I think everything, all of my, like, this kind of stuff really stems from, like, childhood trauma. Mm. Um, but, like, I remember when my therapist was like to me, she's like, you know when you feel an emotion and you might, like, tense up in your shoulders or you might, you know, like, your stomach might start twisting or, you know, you get, like, a hot. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she was like, you know, when you actually feel an emotion and you can feel it in your body. And I was like, I have... No, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm. And I was like, so that is not then. real. You've, I was like, you've made that up. And then I went and asked like every, like every friend that I saw for a week and they were all like, yeah. And I was like, what? I, I'm, the, I'm the problem. Okay, got it. <laughs> Isn't that amazing always, though, what the, body, yeah. what the body will do to protect you, what the brain will do to protect right. you in terms of like distancing yourself from what's going on. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So um, I was like, oh, that's a huge got, thing. Got it. Yeah. 
Because it's it's one of the biggest indicators of what's going on, right? The body knows. Right. When like when you might be feeling sick because like there's an immediate um, you know, even if it's just a subtle danger, like mm-hmm. that might be a cue that someone else might pick up on, but you're like, huh, why did I throw up? Right. Like yeah. there's nothing. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Thanks for explaining that. Um, <laughs> so you you were starting to say that. Um, you feel disconnected from what were you about to talk about your emotions, but you're feeling detached from it already with what you're saying? Yeah, like in general, I um, like the uh, my core is like intellectual, intellectualize and logically think about everything. Mm-hmm. All of the feeling and all of that that is a separate person, and I apparently don't know her. Yeah, wow. Is that someone that you're getting to know or is that someone that you're happy to like just leave living your own life? Um no, I'm 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 trying. I think it is obviously really important to actually feel your emotions. Mm. Um and it is something that I work on in therapy, but it obviously we're looking at like 20 years of doing this, so it's yeah. it's taking time. And it's very, very baby steps. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you've just answered so many big questions about like how your brain functions. So thank you. <laughs> um, but can I also ask about like your, your best queer life, your best Melbourne life? Like um, what has changed for you over the last five years? Because for, for memory, you've um, you discovered that side of yourself like a few years ago. Okay, so I came out at like 28 or 29. I can't actually remember how old I was. Um, And I started sort of like casually dating women, like going on dates kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But like I've been making out with women when I'm out for ever, like for my entire life. And I was always just like, no, it's just vibes because kissing's fun. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I did the same. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's like a very common thing. And obviously, like, growing up, like, we didn't have a lot of bisexual representation. I mean, there was a limited amount of lesbian representation, but it was very femme, like, book mask. Mm. So it was sort of like, oh, well, I don't, I like men. And, like, women are obviously super hot and hotter than men, but, like, I like men, so I must be straight. Mm. And then it was only sort of when I started, I guess, like, really thinking about it and I was like, this makes no sense. Mm. You know when it's something so ingrained in you and then you think about it when you're an adult and you're like, why did I believe that for so long? It literally makes no logical sense. Oh, I can, yeah. I, to to the T, I understand what you're saying. I experienced the, the exact same thing, just in a different body. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um. So, yeah, it was, I mean, like, I, I'm very lucky. I grew up in a very, like, atheist left wing so I'm lucky in that sense but it's funny that even growing up in such an inclusive environment the lack of representation in the media and in my surroundings was enough for me to not know for so long yeah because I think a lot of people are raised in these environments that can be quite closed off to like queer people and all that kind of stuff. But like I have a, I have a cousin, like my first, I have two first cousins. I have a very small family and my first cousin that's a woman is a lesbian and Mm. she's a mask lesbian. Mm. So I grew up 
this was very normal. My entire life I have had, you know, someone who's queer in my, like, inner family circle. Mm-hmm. Yet I was still like, nah, but she's mask. So mm. it's obviously not the same. Yeah. What? 100%. <laughs> and the, the um, categories used to be so much more firm, I feel like. Yeah. I, I just know so many fluid um, cis women now who yeah. are just, like, going with whatever their um, their heart connects with, whether it's back in the day if, like, you were getting with a girl, um, you looked like, you looked mask and you looked, you look yeah. yeah you looked like you were getting with a girl like 100 it was a, yeah. yeah and I think I think it's amazing how far we've come but I also don't think it's surprising that there are so many millennials who are now realizing that they are maybe not not as straight as they thought they were yeah 100 percent um do you think that there's a reason for that because like there's there's so much like we're in our safe little queer bubble right now but there's so much rhetoric around saying that technology and everything is like convincing people to be queer and schools are convincing people to be queer and it's our whole big queer agenda. But what do you, like, what's your take on it? Why do you think people are um, are coming out now? I, I honestly think it's a combination of greater acceptance mm-hmm. and greater awareness. Mm-hmm. I mean, you need, it's, when did we have the plebiscite for gay marriage? Because that was not long enough 2017, ago. I think it was. Right. Like yeah. five years ago, mm. that is not a long time. Like, no. of course, you've got more people coming out. Not to mention that there's a lot of complication in growing up as a woman with expectations of being a woman in terms of getting married, having kids. You know, you don't matter if you don't have a partner. Like there's a lot of really misogynistic elements in our society Mm -hmm. that are literally everywhere no matter how left-wing your family or how open your family is you are still going to be exposed to them extensively Mm -hmm. and that plays a really big part in like dulling women and I guess who we really are because we're sort of raised to focus our lives on how we can please others Mm. and men are raised to make change not to say women don't women obviously make massive changes but mm, I know what you mean we're sort of we're sort of stifled from the like the beginning mm. what's it been like for you um being that side of yourself feeling safe to be that side of yourself how has your life changed um I think I have the biggest thing, shame is obviously still an issue for me, but I think the biggest thing is being more accepting of myself and being more understanding of the areas that make me different, knowing that it's out of my control as opposed to there being something wrong with me. Yeah. You just reminded me, babe, when you said rejection, sensitivity, dysphoria, for anyone who doesn't know what that is, can you explain that? Because I imagine when you just said the word shame, I was like, oh, I should ask her about that because um, that might not be like widely known. So rejection, sensitivity, dysphoria is basically having a really extreme emotional reaction to being rejected or to perceiving being rejected. Now, this can relate to dating, but it can be in friendships. It can be in jobs. It can be in every facet of your life and it can 
be all-consuming and at its core, at least for me when I've experienced it, the rejection is seen as like there's something personally wrong with me. Mm. There's something specifically wrong with me that has caused this rejection and I need to figure out what it is so I can change it. Mm. When it's obviously been proven now that we just have a very different way of dealing with rejection and it's not super helpful. Mm. And I feel like that's such a good distinction to make that you then make it about you when a lot of the time it is just that something didn't line up and it had a lot of the time it's got nothing to do with you and there was nothing to change about you in the first place. Yeah. I think it's that thing of like, no one is, no one is thinking more about you than yourself. Mm. So when you're worried about someone doing something wrong and being like, oh, like when you say something and you're like, oh my God, that was so dumb. That person's going to be judging me for saying whatever it was. They're probably not. Mm. They probably forgot you even said it. Mm. Cause like how often do you hear someone say something and then fixate on it for ages mm. and wonder if they feel bad for saying that wrong or whatever you don't. Mm. Exactly right. When you, um, when you've been speaking, like there's a real mental health thread throughout this conversation, which I've really liked um, and I hadn't hadn't expected, but I'm really glad we've touched on it because I know that so many other people are navigating the same thing. Um, it, I can hear you working on things with a therapist. What has helped you along the way to come to terms with yourself, accept yourself, I guess have a bit more, um, I'm totally just perceiving this, but having a real like hope for your life and um, like a genuine enjoyment in who you are. What are some of the things that you've learned along the way, um, either in therapy or in life that have um, helped you come along? Because I can hear that you're navigating mental health things um, constantly. Um, And I'm sure that other people are navigating very similar things. What are some of the things that you're working on or have worked on that have helped? So I think one of the most important things, not like I, this will depend on everyone, I guess, differently, but the exposure that ADHD has had in recent years has been very validating in terms of not feeling so alone. Right. Like there will be like some insignificant, like seemingly insignificant thing that I do that I will then see on a TikTok and I'll be like, oh my God, that's fine. Like body doubling. I've been doing body doubling forever. And like, it's not, it isn't a bad thing. It was never something that bothered me, but I was always like, how do people just do stuff by themselves? And then I find out that body doubling exists. Can you explain? So body doubling. So body doubling is basically when you have someone else in the same room as you generally and they're not helping you do whatever it is, but they are helping by being there. I'll give you an example of what my most frequent one is, is when I need to clean my room, my room's really messy. And I'll be like, Laura, my best friend, like, Laura, can you come sit in my room with me while I clean it? She doesn't have to talk to me. She can be on TikTok doing literally anything she wants. There is, does not need to be any dialogue, but having her there in the room with me means that I clean. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Mm. So, and it's, I think awareness is, uh, not awareness, but knowing that there are other people out there with the same 
issues and weird quirks is very validating. Yeah. So there's like the strategies that you've learned along the way to help you navigate having ADHD. Um, For me, I need to keep things exciting. I need a very careful mix of structure and keeping things exciting. Mm -hmm. But from like keeping my mental health in check perspective, the two most important things, which everybody hates to admit are the most important things, but they are, is frequent exercise and Mm -hmm. Eating what you're eating, yeah. Eating eating things that are good for your body, which are going to be different for every person, but mm-hmm. it it really makes such a massive difference to your mood. Yeah, that I just yeah, I have so many friends you're and I'm so like this this will help, right. and they're like nah, I don't think so, and I'm I literally it will. Yeah, and I, it, I know it, that sucks. They're the hardest things to that to. If you're in a rut, I feel like they're the first yeah. things people want to ignore, but they're the first things that are going to help. And I mean, exactly, we talk about it in like with my clients all the time because they want you can have clients who want all the strategies in the world, but like have terrible nutrition. Like, and not saying that everything needs to be clean and healthy, but as in stuff that doesn't suit their body is going into their body. Every yeah, day. they're inflamed they're low in mood, they're tired and they're not moving in a way that feels good. And there's so many things that you can do, but if your foundation isn't covered, like, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I have found really helpful in terms of just like something to say to myself Mm. is say, if I'm just being lazy, I don't want to go to the gym today. Like I can't be bothered. Mm -hmm. I will say, am I going to regret going to the gym? Am I going to go and then regret that? Because I'm not, I never have and I never will because I always feel better afterwards. Yeah. And it's just that, it's just sometimes you've just got to force yourself. Even if you just go on a walk, like there's moving, moving your body is unfortunately extremely important. And 100%. Yeah. Cause it can be, it's such a catch 22, isn't it? You can feel so, yeah. oh, I don't want to, and but then it does it. And it gives you a chance to expel energy as well because we our nervous systems do build up different things and our like hormones Absolutely. and it needs to go somewhere. And when it's not going somewhere and we're wondering why we, we're feeling like shit, it makes a, a fair bit of sense. Mm, absolutely. Mm. So, yeah, I think exercise and exercise and eating right for my body is the number one. Mm. Um, before we head off, cause are you still, are you, you're currently dating at the moment for my memory's shocking, but I'm assuming that you're <laughs> dating. What, what tips have you got for, um, for dating when you, you can relate it to neurodivergence if you want to, but I don't want you to feel like I'm relating so many of these questions to, um, your neurodivergence. Um, what are some of the things that you've learned help you in dating? I think you've just got to, I mean, my number one rule with dating is always never settle. Mm. Like I think a lot of people talk about this rhetoric of, oh, well, relationships are hard work and, you know, you have to really work at them. I strongly disagree with that. I don't, Mm. I don't think relationships, I think relationships can be hard work, Mm. 
Mm. And I think you can have to work at them. But I don't think that should be a blanket statement that we're saying about relationships. Because Mm. as far as I'm concerned, a relationship needs to make my life and my happiness better. Mm. Right? If you're causing me more pain than you are positive, Mm. why would I want that? Mm. If I can live a life as like a single person and I'm just like straight up vibing and having casual flings, why would I want that? And mm-hmm. I mean, people will be like, oh, well, it's the emotional connection. I've got friends. Mm. Like I don't, I think relationships can be great. I think a lot of people settle for them. And I think there is a lot of rhetoric around women not having worth if they don't have a partner. And that's something that I have struggled with personally as well. Mm. And I think it is a really harmful rhetoric that is still very strongly pushed upon women Mm. so I think I guess my message for dating is just never settle and if you think someone's okay move on because we don't want okay we want great Mm, I love that it's really good advice and it is it's like available to you as well like the really great is available it's just right it's a matter of um I think it's like faith and hope that it is out there is what um, people can be afraid to um, not admit to but afraid to lean into is that like you can have faith that your sort of person is out there. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people will get caught up with one person that they'll be like, but I'm never going to find someone like that again. Mm -hmm. And in the nicest way, there's 8 billion people on this planet. You're insane if you think you're not going to find anyone that's as good or better than them because I would argue that if you're not together, you need someone better than them. Mm, mm-hmm. You can find the perfect person and if they don't want you back, they're not the perfect person because the perfect person would want you back, mm. right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, thanks so much, babe. This has been a really good conversation <laughs> and thank you for answering the questions so honestly. That's oh, okay. It's because I don't feel my emotions. So yeah. everyone's always like, thank you for being vulnerable. And I'm like, it's not vulnerability because I don't feel anything. It was Susie over there saying it. I said, fuck all. <laughs> Literally, I don't know her. <laughs> um, enjoy the rest of your day. If you're getting ready for the bar as well, enjoy the rest of the um, preparation. When do you open? Thank you. Um, I'm hoping it's dependent on the liquor license getting transferred, which is basically just a waiting game. So I'm hoping for the middle of May. Oh, wow. Congratulations. It's awesome. I know that you're just like, you're just doing life and doing what excites you, but just from an outside in, it's very, it's a really cool achievement that you've been open to doing something like this in the first place. Hey, I'm open to everything. It's part of the problem. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a problem. Stay away from the real estate agencies. (laughs) (laughs) Literally. Um, Thank you so much for your time today. This has been fun. Yeah, it's been so fun. I'll talk to you soon. All right, have a good day. You too, bye. Bye.